Let us pray. Father, we believe all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. What are we to do in the face of disappointment, in the face of disaster, despair, peril? What are the people of God to do when facing these kind of trials? We've got hurricanes hitting California. We have fires in Western Canada. My parents and my brothers and my brother's wife and son, my nephew, all had to be evacuated this weekend out of their homes in Kelowna on the west of Canada. They're currently sheltering in a church. It's a very appropriate place to shelter. But what do we do in the face of such uncertainty? What do we do when we're, we seem like we're up against all the odds are against us? Well, we need to hear the gospel according to Ruth. See, Ruth's story thus far, as we continue this journey through Ruth, we've seen this horrible picture of disaster and disappointment and despair. This Bethlehemite family fleeing to Moab in the midst of a famine, experiencing death and loss there. Naomi comes home just alone, but with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Everything seems to be stacked against them. And even at the end of chapter one, when Naomi and Ruth have returned and it's the beginning of the barley harvest, so what? They have no land. They have no provision. They have no people on their side. Everything is still desperate. And yet, there's incredible hope in this story. And the hope is found in a single verse. It's on the front of your bulletin. Ruth chapter two, verse three, it contains... The whole gospel, one verse, the whole gospel. In the midst of all this despair, all this destruction, we read that so Ruth set out and went to glean in the fields behind the reapers. And she happened to come to the field, the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And so when we find the goodness of God. See, what we see in this one verse is that in the midst of despair and struggle, Ruth goes. She moves forward in faith. And God, the Lord, guides her steps. Supernaturally, providentially guiding her. She goes, God guides her, and the Lord guides her to much more than grain. Much more than grain will be realized in Ruth's life. See, we begin by seeing that Ruth goes. And she set out and went and gleaned. 
Now the gleaning was gleaning around the edges of the field. Israel had been told not to harvest right to the edge of the field. That God's law required that they leave the edges of the field. That you leave just a little bit for the poor, the sojourners, the widows, the fatherless. The people can come alongside after your reapers are there and they can glean something. Ruth is going out to find the leftovers. But she goes. And it's important we recognize that she goes because the gospel never undercuts the reality of human activity. We are still called to be actively involved in this journey of faith. We're still called to move and act and take a step forward. You know, there's people at times will come to me and, and, I, and I don't know if they're intending this, but they end up trying to sound more spiritual than Jesus because I'm, I'm going up to them to thank them for something they've done. I've said, thank you for you know, what you did with the kids there with Sunday school or thank you for that song you sang or thank you for that Bible study you delivered or that way you served in that, in that mission work. And, and folks will then say, oh, it wasn't me, it was God. And I'll say, that's really interesting. I thought I saw you up there. I mean, what they're trying to say is it's all the power of God. I say, of course I know that. I know it's the power of God at work, but he's at work through you. He's working through you. You moving forward in faith. You know, it's interesting that in the very creation story, God has built human activity into this creation. He actually intends his creatures to be involved. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that beautiful picture of there's the garden, the Garden of Eden, and God places Adam in the garden. And what does he place Adam to do? To lounge around. That's what we think, right? Oh, the Garden of Eden, just lounging all day, just don't eat the apples, right? No, he puts him into the garden to work the ground. God forms Adam and Eve to work the garden to name the animals, to subdue and have dominion over creation. This is what we are called to, to be active, to work. And even St. Paul will say we're called to work well. You know that famous moment in 1 Corinthians 15, which I quote all the time, where he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not without effect. Do you know what he says immediately after that? He says, and I worked harder than all of y'all. Now, he's talking to Corinth. There was a few problems going on in Corinth. But his point is, God's grace thrown upon me. I am washed in God's grace, but I worked hard as well. That we are actively involved, actively involved in the work of this world. It's the reason, as I've said before, that we're made image bearers. We can see this in the way we as image bearers, made in the image of God, the likeness of God, are not creators. There's only one creator, But in the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, we become sub-creators. We then take God's creation and fashion and form it for his glory. We are used by God within his plan of creation to work this world. And I mean, I'll say the example of a vineyard. You look at a beautiful vineyard. It will not on its own make a beautiful bottle of Chardonnay. It requires an image bearer. A beautiful field of rye will not on its own be formed into rye whiskey. I know for the Baptists in the room that are getting very nervous, the coffee bean plant will not be formed into a cup of coffee. The point being, 
God has worked into creation that we will work in it. We have a call on our lives to go and go forward. And you and I, friends, will never know in this life the full effect of our work. We'll never fully be aware of all the ways that our work has made an impact. But one day we will see it. You know, I was, as a younger child, uh, terrified of public speaking because I had uh, a bit of a stutter and I stumbled over my words. I just couldn't speak. I couldn't speak straight. At the end of the day, it was probably mostly nerves. But when I was 11 years old, our high school librarian, Mr. John Johnston, came to our classroom and said, we're going to read The Hobbit in class. And I said, hallelujah. And then he said, and y'all are going, he didn't say y'all, it was Canada, but he said, you all are going to read in front of the class, sections. And I went to Mr. Johnson and I said, Mr. Johnson, I will do anything you ask of me in the library. I will wash the floors. I will clean books. I don't know, do you clean books? Whatever librarians do, I will do that if you can let me out of this reading thing because I cannot speak. I felt like Moses before God saying, I cannot speak, don't send me. And he said, you can speak. He said, I'm pulling you out of math class for the next couple months and you're gonna come during that time to the library and we're gonna read together. I'm gonna teach you how to speak. And I said, okay, and I went and slowly but surely I began to read. And he encouraged me past my stumbling and past my stuttering. And within six months, I was reading in front of the class. Now, my math skills have been ruined ever since. This is the truth. (laughs) But suddenly, I wasn't just reading in front of the class. I was being put up for speech. I was being put up for debate. I was put into theater, into Shakespeare. The story goes on. John Johnson has no idea, because he died before I finished high school, that I would one day be standing in front of congregation Sunday after Sunday proclaiming the word of God. He does not know the impact that his work had in this world, but he will know it in the kingdom. He was a good Presbyterian Scotsman. He's with the Lord. And he will know one day the impact that a single life can have. Ruth set out and went and gleaned. In the midst of disappointment, she went forward. You know, the end of Ephesians chapter two, that beautiful picture that Paul gives about how we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, right? That we can never earn any standing before God because of what we do. Nothing that we do will ever credit us to God as a merit. But what does he say after verses eight and nine where he says, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. There's no boasting. What does he say? He says, but we are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. In other words, you ain't gonna merit anything because of what you do. You're never gonna earn your status before God. It is all by grace, but your works have been built into you for his glory. You and I will live out our lives. And I love that he says workmanship because that word workmanship is the word poema where you can hear in the Greek, the English word poem, like poetry. I met a girl after the nine o'clock service named Poema. Parents named her Poema. It means masterpiece in Greek. Masterpiece. That's what you and I are. God's masterpieces 
to be worked in this world for his glory. The ripple effect of one person simply going out and gleaning, even in the midst of disappointment. But here's the thing. She goes and God guides. God does all the guidance powerfully, subtly, even silently. See, verse chapter two, verse three goes on to say, and she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Happened to come. It's subtle even in the Hebrew, but here's what it means. Literally in the Hebrew, it says she chanced upon her chance. You say, what does that mean? It means that in this strange coincidence, God incidence of events, that she ended up exactly where she was supposed to be at the exact right moment. Verse four, and behold, Boaz arrived. At the perfect moment, she's right where she's to be. She chanced upon her chance. It means it's the subtle grace of God working through ordinary means. The book of Ruth, as I've said already in this series, is not a book about angelic visitors nor about burning bushes. This is a story of ordinary sovereignty. God using ordinary, subtle ways to bring about his perfect will. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? Can we see God subtly, even silently, bringing about his purposes in our lives and the lives of those we love, subtly, gently doing it. But you know, even if we do see it, I was, I was thinking about it this week, do we have the hearts and the minds to retain it and remember? I don't know about you, but I've seen amazing things happen in my life. And I've seen amazing things happen in the lives of others. And I am quickly going to forget about them. There's sort of an amnesia that takes place. We stand there amazed at what happens and then slowly the amazement trickles away. You know that psychologists have actually named what this is? They call it hindsight bias. They said that after something that seems random and miraculous and splendid and even near impossible happens, we human beings have a natural tendency to work hard after the fact in hindsight to try and rationalize it, to try and slowly make it make sense according to logic. Like maybe at the end of the day, it seemed at the moment like it was amazement, but as I think more about it, maybe there were other factors that were involved. In fact, the Pew Research Center did a study a number of years ago that said there's actually a higher percentage amongst the successful, more wealthy people in America to believe that what everyone else would call a random coincidence, they would believe actually is at their own hands. It was their own skill, their own ability, their own strength, their own wisdom. There's direct data showing that the more successful you are, the more likely you are to take random events and say, well, yeah, clearly, you know, I I was part of that. I was working, I'm pretty smart. Random events out of your control. Can we see that these things are not something that we are bringing together on our own? You know, so often I'll say to my kids, you know, we have to remember that God's sovereign grace is shown in our lives again and again in that before we were even born, there's so much of God's sovereign goodness that's been poured upon us. Like before you were born, you didn't get to decide where you'd, be born in, what like city you'd be born into, or what family, or what particular time in, in, in world history be born, and, and what opportunities would be before you, and who your family would be, and your skill sets that would be sort of worked into you. That all was given to you before you even put your foot 
on the ground of this earth. That's God's ordinary, subtle sovereignty already at work in your life. And there's so much more. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, he says, prosperity breeds amnesia. We begin to believe, oh, I, I think I've figured it out. I've made it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. You're a God-made man. Not just in your origins, but in your everyday life. Or perhaps Deuteronomy 8 would warn us that beware lest you say in your heart that my power and my strength has gotten me this wealth. You know, when we do foundations, which is our membership class here, I usually tell the story of how I became an Anglican. And I'm still going to do that. I, I, it's sort of the hook to get you into foundations. If you want to hear about how Father Paul accidentally became an Anglican, you've got to come to foundations. So I'm not going to tell the whole thing now, but I, I just can't help myself. There, there, it just so applies. So here's a little bit of the story of how we became Anglican. So we were in Vancouver, Canada in seminary, and I was convinced I was a Presbyterian. And I mean, that week, the week before I thought I was a Pentecostal, I was going through some seasons. Um, but I was, I was convinced that week I was a Presbyterian. So a friend of ours was preaching at a Presbyterian church, Chalmers Presbyterian Church in Vancouver. So Monica and I got on the bus. We, this was before cell phones and GPS. We got off of the stop that we figured was the right stop. And we're instantly lost. And so we're looking around. I did the unthinkable. I asked a stranger for directions. I said, do you know where Chalmers Presbyterian is? And the guy literally looked across the street and pointed at this big marble thing on the top of the building that said Chalmers Presbyterian. And I said, oh, great, wonderful. So we ran in because we were late for church, failing to see the other sign on the side of the church that said Holy Trinity Anglican Church. See, it turns out that the Anglicans had bought the church property from the Presbyterians 30 years earlier, but no one was going to tear that beautiful marble off the top. And so we ran in, jumped into the front row. We clearly were not Anglican and sat down in the front row. No, that's not true. Um, I've got some apologies later. But the point is that we, were, we sat in the front row waiting for a Presbyterian service and in came a processional cross, acolytes, a robed choir, and a dude dressed like this. And I turned to Monica and said, this is not a Presbyterian church. And we looked at the bulletin and it said Anglican. She said, what's Anglican? I said, I don't know. It's like Church of England or something. And I said, but we're going. And she said, no, we're not. We're in the front row. We're Anglican today. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so we waited. And I'll tell you, in those 75 minutes, you got to come to foundational. I'll explain what in those 75 minutes grabbed me. But in those 75 minutes, we walked out that day saying, I think we really are Anglican. This is the church we've been looking for. This is, this is the tradition that we never knew we were longing for. And, and we never looked back. We, we, we were hooked. Did we figure that out? Did we make it happen? Was it all our own strength and power and brilliance and wisdom? No, we chanced upon our chance and ended up in the place where we would serve for the rest of our ministry career. See, this is what God is doing at work in you at work in you for his purposes. So Ruth goes, God guides her. And to close, she gets more than grain. He's guiding her into more than she's asking for. You know, we have that prayer at the end of morning prayer, the, 
the prayer of St. Chrysostom where we lay all our prayers before God and then say, Lord, may you now do, after laying all our prayers that we say, may you do more, do, do what is best for us, right? Which is a fabulously mature prayer. God, here's all the things I need and now what I'm asking for you is to sift them as a father and do what is best for us. And do you know what the cool thing with this story is? Ruth thinks she's gonna go find a little bit of grain but she finds so much more. God answers that prayer in a bigger way than she could ever dream. You gotta come back next week. We're gonna talk about Ruth and Boaz. But she finds not just grain, but grace. Not just grace, but a, a really great guy. And beyond a really great guy, as amazing as that is, this ain't a love story between Ruth and Boaz. This is a picture of a lost sinner and the bridegroom Christ Jesus. She finds the gracious one himself, the redeemer. You know, it's interesting, just a little tidbit for next week. Later in the chapter, we find out that Boaz has a role in that family. He's called a goel in Hebrew. He's a kinsman redeemer. It means that he's actually a mature patriarch within that family of Elimelech, the man who died, and that Ruth is married into that family line. And he's responsible in Israel to actually take care of his family, that if there's, if there's some kind of problem, he is to deal with it. If there's some kind of debt owing, he is to pay it. If there's even a death in the family, he's supposed to somehow provide children for that dead family member. He is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And the cool thing is, though, it, Goel is the same root as the word Gaal, where we get redeemer as in God. It's the same word root that's used when in Isaiah 43, God says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I, God, have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. Ruth will find in that field that day, not just a future husband, she will find the redeemer of the world. And so it is with you and I. God is in the business of giving us more than we ask for. You know, as my kids are preparing to go off to school, right, I got launched two kids off to college. One, one, one went last week, one's going next week. We got two high schoolers. We're in this weird in-between phase. There's that sense of how, how, do I, how do I promise my children that as they go forward, things are gonna be okay? How do, frankly, how do I promise myself? Things are gonna be okay. That as they go, that God will guide them. Well, here's the promise. I can't promise them there won't be storms. I can't promise them there won't be disappointment and loss. I can't promise them that there won't be really difficult seasons ahead of them. But what I can promise them is that the Lord, as they go, will guide them to more than grain. He will guide them to himself. Because that's what he's done and he's demonstrated and he's proven to us. Look at the altar. We forget every week that God intends, yes, to give us those things we need, but behind it all is his promise that's been proven that he gives us himself. My body broken for you, my blood poured out. We forget, we forget, we forget. He brings us back. Remember, I've given myself to you. Even in the hardest moments, he is there with you, offering you himself. I love at the beginning of the creation story in Narnia. Yes, you got Tolkien and Narnia in one sermon. And the magician's nephew, the opening Genesis 1 of Narnia, Aslan, the Christ figure, says this. He says, creatures, 
I give you yourselves. He's singing Narnia into creation. He says, creatures, I give you yourselves, said the strong, happy voice of Aslan. I give you forever this land of Narnia. I give you the woods. I give you the fruits. I give you the rivers. I give you the stars. And I give you myself. This is the promise that God has made to us, that he has fulfilled and proven to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. I will give you myself. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him give us all things? So what are we to do in the face of uncertainty and disappointment and peril? When things seem really rough, we need to hear the gospel according to Ruth. We need to go, confident that God will guide us to much more than grain. He will guide us to himself. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.